0: Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you have your Bible, open it up to uh, the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. It's in the New Testament there. It's a small book. As we've said every week, if you get to Hebrews, just back up one, and it's right there. Philemon. This morning, we're going to be finishing up our series on Philemon. I hope you've enjoyed this study, and I hope that it's been beneficial to, your, to you and your walk with Christ. I, I hope that it's helped you to realize that the gospel isn't just something that we talk about on Sunday, that the gospel isn't just something that we talk about in our life groups and, and in our equipped classes, but the gospel is something that we do. The gospel is something that we live. The gospel guides us, it directs us, it affects us in the big scheme of things in the global community, but it also affects us practically in our individual lives on a daily basis. The gospel intersects with our lives and it should guide and direct us in everything that we do, in every decision that we make. And so in Philemon, what we get is we get a glimpse into one situation there in the early church in the Church of Colossae. And so, if you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks, let me give you a quick recap. If you have been here, this is going to be real repetitive and real familiar, but let's just set the scene for those who, who may have missed the last couple of weeks. Paul, who is the super apostle, he is, he is an amazing man of God, he has tremendous influence spiritually over the church, and really even now over the entire world, he is currently, as we read this story, in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. Paul spent his life persecuting the church, killing Christians, but uh, Jesus radically saved him, turned his life around. Paul began to grow in Christ and began to spread the gospel like nobody else. And so Paul is there in, in Rome, in prison. He's, there for, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. While he was there, he meets an escaped slave and criminal whose name was Onesimus. Paul shares the gospel with Onesimus, and Onesimus becomes a believer. And uh, through a season of growth and, and a little bit of discipleship, Paul tells Onesimus, this runaway slave, that he needs to go back home to Colossae and to his master Philemon and make things right. Now, Onesimus' crimes were very serious, and the punishment had the potential to be very severe. Onesimus was a slave. He had robbed from his master, and he had ran off, and so he could be punished in a variety of ways. He could be beaten. He could be tortured. uh, He could be sent to the arenas to fight wild animals, or he could be put to death. Really, it was up to the discretion of the slave owner. The owner really could do anything that he wanted to The slave, and so um, Paul telling Onesimus to go back, and Onesimus going back was a very risky proposition. However, there was one sort of silver lining in this dark storm cloud, and that's the fact that Onesimus, Onesimus's master Philemon, was a good Christian man. He loved Jesus, he loved the church, and he loved the believers. And so, Paul, knowing this about Philemon, because it appears that Philemon was saved under Paul's ministry, and, and Paul must have known who Philemon was and, and, and how he was growing in Christ. So, Paul writes a letter to Philemon and tells Onesimus, the slave, to deliver it. And in this letter, he calls Onesimus not a slave, but a brother in Christ. Paul asks Philemon to treat him, though a criminal, with kindness, honor, grace, forgiveness, mercy, and respect. So Paul puts this letter in Onesimus' hand, tells him to go back to Philemon... As you know, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, the tension builds in this story, in the fact that um, Philemon had an obligation to the other slave owners and to the system that they were in. Because at that time, in that Roman world, there was over a million slaves, and there was a great fear of an uprising that the slaves would just turn on everybody, turn on their masters, and, and just create mass chaos. And so the thought was that the slave owners who were wronged by the slaves had to operate with justice and punish severely so that they wouldn't go on and empower the slave class to revolt. And so Philemon had a little bit of a duty to his class. And so Paul in his letter to Philemon says, or he really, he argues against Philemon's duty to his class and he argues for grace. He says, operate in grace, operate in mercy, operate in compassion. And now we get to the very difficult question that I've been avoiding these last couple of weeks. And it's the question, it's the social injustice issue. It's the conflict that this entire story rests on. Slavery. How can a Christian be a slave owner? In the scripture, how can a Christian be a slave owner? And if slavery was so rotten and evil, why doesn't Paul just come right out and condemn the entire practice of slavery altogether? It's a question that we wrestle with often. It's a, it's a question that as we look through the scripture, we know that there are moments, there are issues, there are things that come out that don't make sense at at first reading and we really have to look at these things and we have to wrestle through them and we have to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to, to open up our mind and understanding so that we can grasp some of these things because some of these things are really difficult. Can we agree with that? Like This is hard to put together because of what we know now and what the Bible says and and how it says it. And we read or we hear all the time in this modern day liberal agenda that we need to update scripture so that it's more applicable to us today. And if we ever begin to change and update scripture, we are essentially damning the church and damning our souls because it's going to take us to a very, very dark place. So we don't want to change Scripture, we don't want to update Scripture, we don't want to modernize Scripture, we want to understand Scripture, amen? So that's what we're going to try to do today. We're going to try to understand Scripture in in these very difficult texts. And so Paul doesn't come right out and condemn the practice of slavery. In fact, Paul writes to the very church in Colossians, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this, "'Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven.'" In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, 5 through 9, we're not going to read it, but it's the same sentiment. Paul is talking to slaves and to the masters, and, and, and he's telling them how to live appropriately within that system. So again, in studying Philemon, it doesn't appear that Paul is endorsing slavery, but he doesn't come right out and condemn it either, and the question is, why not? It's a fair question, it's difficult, but we're going to try our best to answer it this morning. A couple of years ago... uh, The week after Halloween, uh, after our big trunk or treat outreach stuff, we always have a large crowd, I I did uh, an illustrated message called Frankenstein. Was anybody here for that? You guys remember the Frankenstein message, some of you? We're here. Um, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we had uh, this, the whole stage was kind of decorated as like Frankenstein's lab or Dr. Frankenstein's lab. And, and we had metal shelves and, and we rolled a gurney out here with Frankenstein. We had some electricity things and some smoke and haze and stuff like that. It, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Pastor Jason was Igor, and, and uh, he helped me create our Frankenstein monster, and, and um, we tried to create this environment up here that was a little bit dark and scary, and, and uh, we wanted it to be spooky. It turned into more of a comedy than a, a, a scary movie type feel. Um, in fact, the night before, on Saturday night, we were up here practicing. And uh, my eight year old nine today, my eight year old daughter or seven was sitting in the front row because she wanted to see the Frankenstein show. And um, I told Melissa, I said, maybe you need to take her to the back and maybe get her out because it might be a little scary. And so Melissa went over there and asked Phoebe, how's she doing? And Phoebe said, this is awesome. It's hilarious. (laughs) And so I was like, oh man, this is not what I was hoping for. And so in this message, in this sermon, if it could go wrong, it did. Everything about that day basically went wrong. Pastor Jason, at the time, was struggling with the illness that he was fighting, and so his, his legs were weak, and he just about didn't get our Frankenstein monster up the, up the aisle over here. He finally did, but I was yelling at him the whole time to hurry up. It was in character, but it was still nice to be able to yell at him. Um, our visual and audio props didn't work at the same time. So when we were trying to electrocute our Frankenstein monster, um, the things didn't work right. And so Frankenstein is up here shaking before he's supposed to shake, you know, while he was doing his acting stuff. Pastor Jason was trying to fix our electrical prop during the message. And I was afraid that he was going to really electrocute himself and uh, and, and things were going to go bad. We almost killed our Frankenstein actor, uh, Cody was our actor. He had this big Frankenstein mask on, and we pulled a sheet over him so he couldn't breathe under there, and he was just about to die, so that electrocution part was like, literally, we had to bring him back to life because he was was up there sweating to death, dying. Um, There was a part in the, the sermon where We were adding things to our monster and we were trying to to give him life. And and so uh, we had visuals up here, we had different props to kinda make it look kinda spooky and one of the things we had stuffed in a jar was uh, just a bunch of pork rinds. And so Pastor Jason, as Igor, grabbed a bunch of pork rinds and brought them over to our monster and was trying to put them in. And and what he did is he he lifted up Cody's shirt and he was rubbing pork rinds on his belly. And um, I'm up here trying to preach and I hear Cody giggling. Our Frankenstein monster is giggling So, man, it was a weird, weird day. A weird day. In the midst of all of that chaos, as I was talking about what we have to give our monster to create life, what we have to put inside ourselves to create life, one of the things in, in a list of about seven things I said was a cause. We have to give, we have to have a cause We have to give our monster a cause so that he feels alive. We need a cause to identify with. We need a cause to give us purpose. And so I I went through a list of potential causes, you know, kind of being silly a little bit. uh, Whether it's save the whales or save the trees or save the mosquitoes, it doesn't matter. They just need a cause. Right? Digging wells for thirsty kids in Africa, fighting homelessness or world hunger, dumping buckets of ice water on our heads, disaster relief, literacy, equality, it doesn't matter. They just need a cause. We have to give them a cause. And if we um, pay attention to what's being said today, we know that people need a cause to identify with. That's really a part of who we are. The more I pay attention, uh, the more I watch, the more I listen to people, the more I I realize how true this is. People want to identify with a cause. They want to be a part of something bigger than them. I was having a conversation with a couple of people just a couple of weeks ago, and they were, they were pushing something. They, they, were, they were, uh, uh, had an agenda that they were fighting for, and um, I asked them what the purpose of this was. What do, you hope to, what do you hope to bring about in this? What do you want to do? And they, they really had a difficult time telling me what their end game was. They just wanted to be a part of something. They just wanted a cause to be a part of, to identify with. Sometimes these causes are honorable, good and right, and worth fighting for. Sometimes they're silly and strange, but people still want a cause. And though it seems very strange to us and almost foreign, because we push so aggressively this idea of a cause and being a part of something bigger than ourselves, the reality is Paul never identified with a cause. He identified with Christ. Paul never identified himself with a singular cause. He identified himself with Jesus Christ. He said, to me, it's it's Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is gain. He was all about Jesus. Paul wasn't telling the believers how to change an evil system was slavery an evil system? Of course it was. Paul wasn't telling the believers how to change or fight an evil system. Rather, he was showing them how to live within an evil system. Paul didn't spend a whole lot of time confronting the evil that they lived in. He spent a whole lot of time confronting the evil that lived inside of them. Does that make sense? To fight against an evil system around us and not address the evil system that lives within us, that sin that lives within us, is a losing battle. Most likely, the reason why so many good people with good intentions are so ineffective in producing and creating real change is because we fail to address the evil that's in us when we're so aggressively fighting against the evil that's around us. Paul says, let's start here. Let's get this right First, A cause without the gospel of Jesus Christ is eternally worthless because it's not going to produce any real lasting results. As we read the New Testament, we know that the New Testament was written primarily to a persecuted church. It was written to a group of believers that were um, um, being uh, abused and belittled and beat down and killed in many times, in, in many ways. It was a persecuted church. The New Testament of the Gospels and, and the, the, um, the, the rest of the New Testament written to the New Testament church was not intended to rally the believers to overthrow a corrupt system. If you remember, when people were looking for the Messiah, when the Jews were looking for the Messiah, when the disciples found and identified the Messiah, uh, and those people we know as the apostles, when they found and identified the Messiah, what were they waiting for? They were waiting for Jesus to establish himself as an earthly king to overthrow and make right the evil and corrupt system and to make everything better. Isn't that what they were fighting for? Isn't that what they were hoping for? But that's not what Jesus came to do. That's not what the New testament says the new testament isn't written so that we can rally the troops rally the believers to overthrow a corrupt system it was written to show the new testament believers and to show us today how to live and if necessary die fully committed to christ within a corrupt system those aren't always easy it's not always a great sort of american rendition of the gospel but it's how the Gospels were written. So throughout history, the causes that have gained the most traction have to do with really social justice issues or social injustice issues. And I was doing some studying this week, and I, and I found this definition about social justice. It says, Promoting a just society by challenging injustice and valuing diversity. It exists when all people share a common humanity and therefore have a right to equitable treatment, support for their human rights, and a fair allocation of community resources, social justice, or social injustice causes. And we know what some of those are. We can identify some of those. Poverty, um, racism, clean drinking water, health care, education, abortion, human trafficking, homelessness, and many, many others. These social justice causes. By the way, the church throughout history has led the way in addressing the social justice issues. And many times, in many ways, it's it's in those social justice moments that the believers in the church shines bright because they're usually the ones on the front line saying, hey, this is not right, let's do something about this. And the goal is always the same when addressing those social justice issues. It's to make the world a better place, right? Isn't that always what we say? To make the world a better... We're going to address this to make the world a better place. We're going to fix this to make the world a better place. I'm going to try to tread carefully here, but the reality is this. No matter how many social justice victories are won, we aren't going to rebuild the Garden of Eden. We know that, right? It doesn't mean we stop fighting. It just means that there will always be a fight. And no matter how many of these things we address and and they are good and we as believers need to address them and we as believers need to fight for them, we will never completely eradicate the sin and the evil system without because there is sin within. Scripture says, doesn't say, if you work hard enough to right the social injustices, then if you pray long enough, then you are going to attain this perfect utopia there on earth, and that's going to be your sure reward. It doesn't say that anywhere. In fact, Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 6, says this. Many of you are familiar with this. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you, talking to the Christians, the believers, the church, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It's not a feel good, good news. Hey, let's celebrate. It's exciting sort of thing, but it's the reality of what Scripture says, right? Pain, suffering, sin, social justice, social injustice issues will always exist. doesn't mean we bury our head in the sand and say, we can't do anything about it anyway, so why try? It just means we have to stop looking at the gospel through the lens of social justice issues, and we have to start looking at social justice issues through the lens of the gospel, It has to be gospel first, gospel first, gospel first, because it's easy in the world today to look around and see what's wrong and never know where to start with what's right. It has to be gospel first. A commentary written by Alexander McLaren says this, First, the message of Christianity is primarily to individuals and only secondarily to society. It leaves the units who, ha- who it has influenced to influence the mass. Second, it acts on spiritual and moral sentiment and only afterwards and consequently on deeds or institutions. Third, it hates violence and trusts wholly to enlightened, enlightened conscience, so it meddles directly with no political or social arrangements, but lays down principles which will profoundly affect these and leaves them to soak in the general mind. And as the gospel, as as the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the word of God, amazing, radical, aggressive grace, as the gospel, not the cause, not the sin, not the injustice, but the gospel. As the gospel stirs and simmers in the hearts of godly men and women, we are no longer free to sit idly by and do nothing. But as the gospel stirs, we have to rise up, we have to respond, and we have to fight. Why? Not because of the injustice, but because the gospel compels us to. Because as we understand the great call and the great ministry that we have, as we understand the great responsibility to represent Jesus Christ here on this earth, we can't help but sit silently by and let injustice happen. But it's the gospel that compels us to do that. Had the early church begun an open crusade against slavery in that time, they would have been crushed by the opposition and the message of the gospel would have been confused with the social and political program. But it's the gospel that stirs in the hearts and the lives of men and women that compel us to face and fight these social injustices. Amen? So, what do we do? What's the response? How do we effectively live out the gospel in light of these kinds of issues? I believe that the answer is simple. It's difficult, but it's, it's a simple answer. The only gospel response that a believer has to injustice, to social issues, to the sin that's around us, is radical, costly, and aggressive grace. This whole series we've been talking about grace, Philemon, grace on the run. Every single week we've been talking about grace and helping us to, and and hopingly helping us to better understand grace. Because it takes more than awareness, concern, or love to solve a problem. Love must pay a price, and that's what grace is. Grace is love that pays a price. Grace is love that says, charge that to my account, put that on my tab, I'll take care of the bill, I'll pay the price, even though it's not my price to pay. Grace is love that pays a price. Let's finish up this, uh, the book of Philemon here this morning. Let's look at verse 17. This is how Paul finishes this letter to Philemon. In verse 17, he says this, so if you consider me your partner, Paul is saying, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. He's saying, treat him like you would treat me. Honor him like you would honor me. Respect him like you would respect me. Verse 18, he goes on. And if Onesimus has wronged you at all, look, he has wronged you. Or if Onesimus owes you anything, he does, O Philemon, something. He says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self, Paul is kind of giving him a little dig like, look, um, you're a believer because of my ministry, um, but I'll pay his debts. Even though you kind of owe me, um, I'll pay it. I, Paul, will repay it. And what Paul is doing in this, it's kind of cool. What Paul is actually doing is he's giving Philemon a way to save face in the political world that he was in. He's giving him a way out. He's giving Philemon an opportunity to maintain his status, his influence, and his importance in the community while at the same time exercising grace. He's just asking Philemon to suspend any physical punishment altogether. Just suspend the physical punishment, but instead exercise his rights if he feels like it's necessary to pursue financial restitution. To pursue financial punishment. And in that case, Paul says, I'll pay it. Don't beat him. Don't kill him. Don't send him to the arena. If, if he owes you anything, if there's going to be a financial restitution made, um, do that. Take that route. And if you take that route, I'll pay it. And I'm good for it. Paul's saying, if he's guilty, charge my account. I'll take the damage. I'll suffer the loss. I'll pay the price. I'll settle the demand for justice. I will appease all those who are calling for retribution. Just charge it and I'll pay it then you can tell everybody in your circles and in in, in the community that, yes, he was punishment, and, yes, the debt was paid. What happens when you go out to dinner and you're with somebody and they say, just put it on my tab? Maybe maybe you have a rich uncle or something like that and you've gone out to a really fancy place place, and uh, maybe you've been in a situation where somebody says, hey, look, I'm going to take care of this today, I'm going to pay the bill, Um, you just put it on my tab. Uh, What happens when you look at the menu? It opens up a whole new world of possibilities, doesn't it? When we were on the basketball team, every year in Cincinnati, we would go to this really nice place if we won the the tournament there in Cincinnati, and we always did, I mean, come on. Um, But... But we'd always go to this really nice place, and we ha- we'd have a dollar limit. And because the place was so nice, we, we had, there were two things on the menu that we could order. You couldn't do appetizers. You couldn't do drinks. You couldn't do desserts. It was just like two things on the menu that we could order. And they were really good, but we were just limited because of the, the price that we had to stick with. One year, uh, our coach's rich brother came, and, and uh, he's a business owner. I don't, know, I don't even remember what he does. I just know that he had lots of money. Um, he said, okay, guys, this one's on me. You get whatever you want. And I remember we all kind of looked at Coach. We're like, get whatever we want within like the the boundaries of these two items. And he said, he said, whatever you want, do what you want. And so that was like it was a whole new world, right? We no longer looked at the price, we looked at the menu. So the waiter comes over and he says, Hey, can I get you something to drink? Sure. (laughs) Of course you know and then he says hey what can i get you to eat you want some appetizers yeah let's bring on some appetizers you know, and then the main and then the main course it wasn't like just these one items i mean we had all sorts of options and then at the end of at the end of the meal the waiter comes back and what do they always say hey did you save did you save room for dessert As a matter of fact, I did, yes, thank you. Can I see a dessert menu, right? Don't bring the price, just bring the menu, right? When somebody else is paying the price, we look at things differently. What happens when someone else is promising to pay the bill is oftentimes we neglect to understand the full cost involved, right? And rarely, if ever, do we offer the appropriate amount of thanks or gratitude when somebody else foots the bill. Paul is showing us with a practical application of the gospel, grace in action, love that's willing to pay a price. And I think it's important for us to consider this question: Am I living a grace-filled gospel? Am I living a gospel that is willing to pay the price for somebody else's mistakes? Am I operating in a love that pays a price? Do I offer grace to my coworkers? Or do I secretly stew and plan and fester in all the ways that they irritate me? Do I offer grace to my spouse, to my children, to my parents? When people wrong me, do I demand that they pay? Or will I position myself to settle someone else's bill? Not to just address the wrongs and the issues that you have and that you're involved with, but do you live out the gospel in a way that says, hey, I'm going to interject myself and settle somebody else's account, pay for somebody else's bill that I don't have to pay on my own? You'll never look more like Jesus than when you operate in grace. And if you're trying to find a way to influence people, to share the gospel with people, Operate in grace. Show them what grace looks like. Then Paul concludes his letter to Philemon, verse 20. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Essentially, he's saying, you owe me, Philemon. Look, we're all talking about grace and grace, and I want you to operate in grace, but you owe me. Don't forget that. Confident of your obedience, he writes, knowing that you will do even more then I say, it seems Paul is suggesting not only forgive and restore, but take it a step further and set free. Verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epiphas, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark and a bunch of other people. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I want to close this message in series by spending a few moments talking about Jesus. Worship team, please come. Last week... We talked about some very practical application points that we could draw from the message. Uh, We said, do the right thing. In every situation, just do the right thing. Make the right decision. Do the right thing. When it's popular, when it's unpopular, just do the right thing. We said, buy stock in new believers, and we talked about the practical aspects of um, encouraging and ministering to and allowing new believers to minister um, because there's, there's great potential in new believers. And we talked about the fact that forever is a really long time. But this morning in closing, I don't have any practical application points, just a truth that I want you to spend some time considering. As we consider grace in the story of Philemon, what Paul offered for Onesimus was a huge thing. He offered to pay the bill. He offered to take the hit, to endure the the penalty or the punishment, And, and that was huge. It was a radical display of grace. What Paul offered was a big deal. I would ask this with, with not asking for a show of hands. But how many of us have ever done that? How many of us have ever operated in that way, saying, hey, look, I know I don't have anything to do really with this situation, and I know that they deserve punishment, and they have to be punished, but, but put that on me instead. And not in sort of a lip service way that it doesn't affect, but in a way that it actually costs you something. So that's a big deal. Let's not ever underestimate what Paul is doing here is a massively big thing. Saying, I'll pay the damages that were caused as a result of Onesimus' criminal and sinful behavior. Even though he was a slave, and slavery was a corrupt, evil system, it was criminal, and it was sinful what Onesimus did. And Paul says... I'm going to pay the debt that's not mine. This is aggressive grace. Can we agree on that? This is a big deal. But one thing I do want you to consider as we close this morning. As awesome as this show of grace was, think about this. Paul only offered to pay Onesimus's debt after he gave his heart to Jesus. Everybody say after. He only offered to pay his debt after he became a believer, after Onesimus changed his heart, his life, his ways, his attitude, after he committed his life to Jesus. Paul only offered to pay his debt after Onesimus committed to be a better person. Don't get me wrong, what Paul did was still an amazing display of grace, but it came after Onesimus made a change. That's awesome. But even still, that's just a mere shadow of what Jesus did for you and me. Because the truth is this, in this story, we want to be like Paul. We want to uh, use Paul as as our standard, that we want to measure ourselves. by. We want to be like Philemon. We want to strive to grow in grace and maturity, and, and so we can do that. But the reality is, all of us can associate, because we have been Onesimus a sinner on the run, rebellious to our loving and gracious master. And for all of us, because you're in this room, we have lived a life where grace has pursued us. There's a major difference between what Paul did and what Jesus did. Because Paul paid after a life change. Jesus paid the price before a life change. And if we consider the implications of this through the story of Paul, the scripture in Romans chapter 5 verse 6 and 7 takes on a whole new weight. Because remember, Onesimus was a criminal. He was a bad guy. After he became a good guy, Paul said, "I'll cover the debt." But you and I in our life as Onesimus in our oper- or in our uh, in our basically journey through life in those moments that we have identified with, with Onesimus that we are sinners that we are bad people and we are running from our master we are running from God. Jesus said, I'm going to pay the price for them I'm going to cancel their debt, I'm going to take the weight of their punishment before them before or for them before they become a good person. I'm going to take it for them while they're still bad people. Have you ever watched those, like, 2020 shows or those Dateline shows where uh, the criminal at the end, like in the last 15 minutes, they're standing there in the court, and the judge sentences them, and you know they did it. All the evidence points to that, the fact that they did it. Um, it's obvious that they did it, and that person just stands up there, that criminal, that the murderer, whoever they are, stands up there, and they're just belligerent and arrogant, and, and they just are kind of spitting in the face of the court, and they're still maintaining their innocence. Have you ever seen those those shows? And what do you want? Man, you want the judge to just throw the book at them. Send them away forever. Give them the chair. You know, you want them to be punished, right? When you and I were in that court and we're standing up there and we are maintaining our innocence, we are demanding our righteousness, when God obviously knows that we are radically guilty, He says, even while we are standing there in arrogance, in spite, in hatefulness, um, throwing, throwing our hand up in front of God, God says, I'm gonna send my son to take the punishment for you while you're still belligerent, arrogant, and aggressive towards justice. Look at what Romans chapter five says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still criminals, before we had any sort of an attitude or life change, Christ died for us. Jesus paid the price while we were still on the run. Jesus paid the price while we were still sinners. Even the grace that Paul gave, though extravagant, was a massively watered-down version of the grace that we experience in Jesus Christ. Jesus poured out His blood. He bore the cross. He paid our debt. He became our sin even before repentance entered our mind. Love that pays a price. This is the gospel. This is what the book of Philemon shows us. It doesn't point to a good man, Paul. It points to a good man, Paul, but it shows that that even what this good man, Paul, did is so much smaller than what Jesus did for us. Love that pays a price. In the closing scene of Schindler's List, Many of you may have seen that movie. It's a difficult movie to watch. But in the closing scene, Oskar Schindler is surrounded by hundreds of Jews that he had rescued from the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. He's being honored and recognized for his effort and the amazing grace that he gave to save so many. It was a love that paid a price, and it paid a big price. It's believed that Oskar Schindler was responsible for saving over 1,200 Jews, over 1,200 Jews, he was responsible for saving single-handedly. And in that closing scene, some of the Jews were there, and they were honoring him, and they gave him a ring with the inscription that said this, whoever saves one life saves the world entire. As he's standing there, and he takes the ring, and puts it on, he's hit with the weight of it all. He's surrounded by hundreds of Jews that he was responsible for saving. He's overcome with emotion, and he says, I could have done more. And you can see the weight of the guilt of this this reality just begins to hammer his chest because he knows what the concentration camps were. He says, I could have done more. And the man there that was honoring him says, no, stop it, stop, look around. All of these people are here because of you. He says, I didn't do enough. I, th- I didn't do enough. As he's walking around. Just the magnitude of it all hits him. And he says, he walks over to his car. He says, this car, why did I keep this car? That's 10, that's ten people right there. I, I could have I gotten 10 more. He, he pulls the, the pin off of, his, off of his coat jacket there And he says, this pin, this pin, it was two people I could have, two, I could have got two Maybe one, at least one I He pulls the ring off of his finger He says, here's another one Towards the end of that scene He crumbles into a ball of guilt The people come and they, they, they Wrap their arms around him And they embrace him holding him, trying to prop him back up, trying to let him know, man, what you did was amazing. And he was wrecked with the fact that I should have done more. He was haunted by what he withheld. Though he was giving extravagant, amazing grace, he was haunted by what he held back. Man, I wonder what would happen if we let that same grace that Christ lavished on us to compel us to do more, to love more, to give more, to sacrifice more, to reach more, to feed more, to rescue more, to disciple more, to baptize more. What if we let that grace stir our hearts and our affections to love people more, to love people who don't deserve to be loved, to love people who are hard to love. What if we allowed that grace to stir us up and and we'd learn to love and pay the price at the same time? Why? Because Jesus loved us and paid for us before we repented. Why do we have to wait for people to be lovable before we love them when Jesus loved us before we were? As Jesus emptied himself, let us learn to empty ourselves so that we don't come to the end of our life haunted by the fact that we could have done more. Let us be a people who take this grace and run with it. Because we live in a world, we live in families, we live in communities that need it. Let us look like Jesus for them. Let us be willing to pay that price in our homes, in our schools, in our families, in our communities. Because this is the only hope for real change. Stand your feet all across this place. We give grace because we're recipients of grace. In in this room full of however many people are here, you're going to fall in one of two categories. You've either been a recipient of radical grace, and man, just as we talk about this, your heart is stirred for affections for your master and your savior Jesus and the weight of all of this begins to kind of permeate our hearts we realize how much Jesus loved us and how good he is and 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 how often we fail him, and, and he still loves us anyways, and so and so as we get this message out, and as you open your heart and your mind to it, you're like, wow, man, God, you are so good, and, and, and Jesus is becoming bigger in your life, and he's becoming more worthy in your eyes, and, and he's, he's more worthy of praise and affection in your, in your understanding here this morning, because you understand the grace that he lavished on you, and so you may fall into that category or you may be in this place and you may say for the very first time I I realize that I'm in desperate need of the grace of Jesus Christ for the first time in my life I, I realize that I'm in desperate need of a Savior that if he is who you say he is and if he is willing to pay that kind of price and if while I'm belligerent and arrogant he is still dying for me or he still died for me then I want to give him my life I want to follow him I want to trust him I want to believe in him bow your heads and close your eyes all across this place it's this message of grace that even on our best day we can't even begin to understand if you've been a recipient of grace and God has radically saved you could could you lift your hand up all across this place you'd say man he's done a work in my life that that it is it just blows my mind that he would do that for me keep your hand up all across this place keep it up If you're in need of grace this morning, would you raise your hand? With that first group, your hands are up. That first group, your hands are up. But those are, if you're in need of grace this morning, if there's a situation in your life this morning that you would say, man, I need God to show up, I I need His grace, there's a situation that that it's not good, but I, I need that grace in my life, would you just lift your hand up? Pastor Dan, let's sing this. And with our hands lifted high, in surrender and worship to God. We're going to cry out to him because he is all we need. He's all we need because he's given us everything. And so if you have been a recipient of that grace, just let your mind and your affections love on him. If you're in need of that grace this morning, why don't you call out to him to be who you need him to be this morning. Let's sing this all across this place as we close.